All right, Jessica, I really appreciate you joining this podcast here today. Um, as a lot of the listeners know, I do a nice mix of solo episodes and guests, and um, it's been a bit of time since I've had a guest. So I'm sure they're excited. They're probably getting tired of hearing my mouth um, and, and my perspective. So thank you for being on this show. Uh, let's start this way. Let's get right to it. Uh, okay, please, sounds great. No, 100%. If you can please just give us a quick 90 seconds on your background, um, if you feel comfortable doing it, the, the company that you're associated with and the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I work in large-scale transformation, uh, customer experience, and organizational change. And what that really means is I work with clients that are undertaking something that is going to significantly impact their people, their process, their technology, usually a combination of that, and help them to realize the full potential of that change. I've been doing that for... Uh, probably about 20 years. Uh, before that, I was a program manager in the insurance industry for nationwide insurance. And uh, now I work with an organization, Axia Consulting. And that's, I think, probably the highlights. And what does Axia do? Give, give everyone a, maybe a, a 90 second window into Axia. Yeah, so Axia is an employee-owned company, and we work with clients in the, you know, $500 million to $1 billion space, plus or minus. Um, we have a Microsoft practice implementing Microsoft ERPs. We have an Oracle practice implementing Oracle solutions. And then we do a significant amount of both business consulting and organizational change management, and those are really two sides of helping our clients achieve the value of their implementations. So for example, do you have the processes in place to really capitalize on the change? Do you have people aligned with the change who are trained? Is your communication in place? All of those elements, um, leadership engagement, employee engagement, down to things like how are you going to improve your inventory accuracy? How are you going to improve um, how you forecast? All of those types of things that fall more on the business consulting side. And 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 what what from your perspective, what is usually happening inside of a business prior to them reaching out to you? Like what what pain points? What what chaos is occurring? So it really depends on the company. I'd say, you know, there's probably, you know, two types of company, companies in that regard, the ones that are um, running after opportunity. So they're looking to do something more, better, faster, or there are the companies that are running from something like a new competitor, a disruption in their marketplace, and something where they need to really take a big step forward to stay competitive. So you have kind of those two opposing scenarios. So the ones where they're looking to seize an opportunity, a lot of times that can be driven by new capabilities. So maybe a new technology now enables them to do something more, better, different, or they've identified a new market to bring their product or service to that they hadn't previously um, tapped into. Whereas yeah. on the other side, and I think this is really where your question came, is when people are running from something, it's usually um, pain, 
revenue or profit margin leaks, which are all the things related to um, poor productivity because you have a lot of manual processes, you're relying on your hero employees. It's difficult to onboard people because everything is really requires a lot of institutional knowledge um, to get up to speed. And that's all of those painful things, broken processes or inconsistent processes, poor technology, outdated technology, um, all of those types of things are probably uh, the most typical um, is that reactive uh, need to, to make a change. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and would you say on the change management front directly, would you say it's more it's more often than not or reverse, you know, the leaders that you're working with at a departmental level, at a C-suite level are 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 open-minded to the ebbs and flows of a lot of the different frameworks that I'm assuming you're bringing to the table from a change management process, or are they are they receptive to it? Are they do you find um, some excuse me some friction in the beginning of that process? What is what does that experience look like if we were to kind of be a fly on the wall? Yeah, so I think it really you have kind of the two ends of that spectrum, and not many people um, hover in the middle. And that is you have people who have been down the road of large scale implementation, large scale change, and they know that it fails if you don't have alignment between people, process and technology, and that, you know, throwing some training in front of people before you make the big change isn't enough, that, that you have to really have a strategy around communication, engaging your leaders at every level, engaging your employees, um, and all of those different aspects. And then you have other people and whether it is because they've had a poor experience with organizational change or they just have a lack of experience, they minimize the importance of those things. And um, a lot of times they either don't account for it or more likely they just cut corners thinking, you know what, we don't have the time or the money. Maybe we trim a little here, trim a little there until you've trimmed out to, you know what, for communication, we're going to send out an announcement right before training and right before go live. And we'll, we'll do a little bit of training and that should be good enough. Mm. And that is, doesn't provide the consideration and the thoughtfulness that you need to move people from where they are today to where you need them to be. And again, we're talking about large scale change, not implementing something, you know, small and focused. That's just, I need to show you how to use a tool. This is, there's culture change, mindset change, um, and all of those aspects yeah. to think through. Let me ask you this, and this is connected to a lot of the work that I do, right? You know, the name of the podcast is the E1B2 Collective Podcast, Employees First, Business Second. And, and a lot of people misunderstand that Employees First, Business Second tagline. They think it's a, it's a perspective where I coddle employees. They think it's a perspective where I, you know, objectively lean into an employee's perspective first. And it's not, it's really, frankly, I, I do it because, well, originally for, and I think I told you this in my intro and um, a lot of the listeners know, I, I do it and I came up with it because when I was a very young man, but still I was running a company that was meaningful where I, I didn't do that. You know, I didn't understand the power of making sure an employee was comfortable with where we were going, making sure they were engaged with where we were going, um, making sure they felt heard and recognized. And that person left the company 
that was very much directly directly correlated and connected to about 80% of revenue. Um, and so that's kind of where it derived from. And so from, from, from that, what I want to ask you is, in the work that you do and, and how Axia kind of attacks this work as an organization, and just as you look at this, you know, in the industry, I mean, you've been involved in this for many years. Do, do you find that that leaders internally know, care, understand, respect the fact that you, in my personal opinion, have to get some sort of data, some sort of insight into how employees want to feel the change, how employees prefer to go through the change, how employees want to be involved in the change? Is that is that at all a thought in their mind? Do they care? Do they want to care? Do they are they open to caring? Um, do you do you think that's an important factor to kind of understand how employees want to experience the change so that it can uh, it can go down a little bit easier? What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I would say it's paramount. Um, without that buy-in from employees, you're probably going to get the letter of the implementations, like the letter of the law. You're going to get. I may do the keystrokes in a new system, or I may take the steps you know, A, B, C. And so now I'm being compliant. But is that really what you need to achieve the full potential of this change that you're trying to make? Do you need people to just comply? Or do you need for them to engage, to do something different, to behave different, to collaborate differently? And if that is the case, which it is in nearly... I would think all jobs that are uh, knowledge worker jobs. Um, and so when that is the case, you have to make people aware of the change, the why we're doing it. Um, sometimes even more compelling is what's the cost to our business if we don't do the change? What's in it for each employee? So why should it matter to them? and then engaging them in that change and making sure that they fully understand it and that there's a mechanism for them to provide feedback because it's a guarantee that whomever is implementing the change, whatever that group is, they're going to overlook something or many things. Hopefully it's little things, but it's a guarantee. And even if you got everything perfect when you launched it, you're going to need to do continuous improvement, which I, I believe should be fed by feedback. So um, whether leaders get that, I think most of them tend to understand it fundamentally. It doesn't mean that sometimes they forget to include that in each of their decisions. And so sometimes they overlook the people element when they make decisions. But if you were to stop them and say, okay, what's the impact on your team members? Are we accounting for them? They usually can understand that there is an impact, although many times they will minimize what that impact might be. I will say though, that I've had a few clients over the years where I've had to ask them a question and that is, are you making this big change or this transformation to say that you did it? or to realize results. Unpack that more, what do you mean by that? So if it's to say that we did it, we're, we're just going through the motions even at that executive and leadership level. We, we're trying to check the box. We told someone that we were gonna do X and we didn't really mean it. Um, whether that was 
I worked for a company once where they were really big on talking about empowering employees, but it went as deep as talk and that's it. And so if you were to implement a big change around empowerment, it really just needed to be as deep as we're going to use the words empowerment. We're going to incorporate that into some of our messaging and we're going to explain it to some of our leaders, but we're not looking to truly change the behavior of what does it look like in our organization for team members to show up empowered and for their leaders to support that empowered behavior. Mm. No, it makes a lot of sense. And, and do you find, and do you find kind of going back a little bit, do you find that companies, leaders try to get the employees feedback and point of view earlier in the change management process? And, and really let's focus more on you as a consultant and, and some of the best practices you believe in. Do you, do you push to get that feedback from the employees first or do you, are you more open, accustomed to, comfortable, kind of having it be baked in throughout the experience? Because, and I ask you this because I, I've been on both sides and I've always teetered where I, I genuinely believe there needs to be some inventory collection of, of thoughts, perspectives. To your point, you were saying, you know, a lot of these leaders and or the firms that are supporting, they, they know a lot, but they don't know everything. There could be information that they, they, that, that they could extract from employees that could really help the change management process or the goals that the company wants to um, wants to experience on the other side of the change. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I think that engaging a set of employees, a good cross-section is very important in nearly all changes. And I say nearly all because there are occasionally uh, emergencies, regulatory things, where we just have to do it. Now, that said, it can still be helpful to engage people on how do we message this? How do we explain it? How do we um, get people to make the change? And so that's a very small subset. But yes, I, I usually recommend that for a large-scale tra transformation that you identify uh, change champions or people that participate in a change network. And so that isn't just leaders who are going to be propelling the change, but that you also have influencers and potentially they even start as people who are resistant, but open to buying into the change, given communication, a better understanding um, and their engagement. And so they can serve as a really good sounding board. So you can test your messaging with them. You can have them, if it's a system implementation, in there getting a feel for, okay, what are the benefits that this is going to provide to me, people in my role? How does this help us? And they can help paint the picture for that what's in it for me to their peers. Um, it's a great way to propel change, not just from the top down, but from these individuals that are in the organization at all levels outwards to their peers. That's really helpful too. So, so let me understand something. These, these individuals you have inside the company that are a believer in the values of the company that you, you test some of the feedback on and, and, you, and you gather their perspectives, 
what if what if and if I'm understanding, what if some of these change agents or these individuals that are a believer in the change and the outcomes of the change, what if they don't have great rapport with fellow employees internally? And what I mean by that is what I'm gathering from you is there's a bit of data that you collect in the front end prior to the change to make sure the, the way that you're going to inevitably roll out the change folks can engage on and engage with. But what if throughout the process there are people that are not aligned with the change and we're trying to rely and, and lean on those change agents internally. But what if those change agents don't have great relationships with the people internally? Or what if the relationships are starting to change where employees are looking at them from a completely different point of view because they feel like they're no longer one of the team players? How do you, how do you unpack that? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things is one, one of the things you want to look for in these individuals who are gonna serve as change champions or part of the, your change agent network is that they are influencers. Now, that said, you mentioned maybe their influence changes, their position or their perceived position, position mm. changes. You always have to be keeping your finger on the pulse to see, do we have good representation in our change managers or our change agents? Do we need different representation? Do we need more representation? And sometimes you're going to get to a spot where your leaders, and they should be doing this anyways, but where you're going to have to really um, pause and look into it more is identifying the risks of resistance, mitigating resistance, and having contingency plans for resistance. So first, we have to understand why are these people resisting what the change agent is trying to communicate, position, share, and to really get to the heart of it and asking why. So, you know, the rule of thumb of asking kind of the seven levels of why, why do you feel that way? Why are you resistant? Mm. And whether it's the change agent that goes through that process, so you can find out, is it the person that they're resisting, this change person? Or is it the change and they're resisting the messenger um, and finding that out? And that's when we get smarter about is what we're doing, what we're communicating, how we're communicating it working, not working. Is the resistance based on people's unwillingness to change? Is it based on a history of change where they just don't trust us because we've fallen on our face before re related to change? or? Sometimes it's a, a buy-in issue with employees who aren't going to get on board because potentially their values don't align with the change, their ideas for their future or their career don't align with the change. Mm -hmm. And so potentially their role in the company, it, it doesn't suit what they're looking for. And I would say that is usually the last place that we get to after we've thoughtfully really dug into where that resistance is coming from and what are the valuable morsels that we can use to incorporate into the change itself and or how we're rolling it out and not jumping to this person is someone who just resists change. Um, I'm the first person to say Resistance, healthy resistance is fantastic. That's engagement. That is a form mm. of engagement. I'll, I will take resistance every day over apathy. No, a thousand percent. I, I, I think 
I mean, I think that goes with, you know, relationships with a spouse, with a child, with friends in a professional setting. If, if no matter what you're sharing, if there's change management occurring, if there's a perspective, if there's an idea, if there, whatever you're doing, you know, if, if, if individuals are, um, are just listening, are just moving along and just agreeing, I, I believe yes men and, and, and yes individuals can potentially be, like to your point, worse or um, not as impactful or to potentially negative, more negative than someone that will push back. Because if they're pushing back, then that typically means they care. Uh, it, it typically means the organization and or myself as a leader, we have to try to extract something from that pushback. And, and, and I think you would agree, the best leaders and the best cultures internally have a have systems from an internal communications perspective and a relationship perspective to have a healthy dose of, um, of, of pushback, of diversity of thought, and to be able to create that and appreciate that during, during the change, man change management process can be difficult, but it's but it but it can get us to it, it can get us to success, right? Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that I tell leaders, um, oftentimes new leaders, I tell this too, but sometimes even seasoned ones, that resistance that when you get that, that is a prime time to really cement your leadership and how you're perceived as a leader and how you show up to resistance. Do you listen? Do you accept feedback? Do you incorporate feedback? And is it safe? Is there psychological safety in people providing feedback? So you may ask for it, but in some cultures, people know that that's kind of a trick question. Um, you don't actually want it. But if you're a leader who provides that safety and uses that feedback and can admit when there was a misstep, that is when you really earn your stripes as someone's leader. That's when you create that culture that people want to be in as opposed to the one where either you don't ask for feedback or you ask for it and you just nod your head and continue doing what you were doing or there are the undercurrents of, you know, now you're never going to be considered for upward mobility because you're someone who provided feedback that they didn't want to hear. Let me, let me ask you this as a last question on this, and then we'll, we'll kind of get back to it later. Um, and, and not to call out any director, any leaders directly or any clients directly, I wouldn't want you to do that. But has there ever been a moment where you, you've been admit with through the process and there's something in your gut? or there's data, or there's moments throughout the consulting process where you can just tell that the company's just not getting it around some of the elements that we're talking about. They're just not getting it having change manage, change, change agents internally. They're just not getting it, um, you know, gathering and, and collecting the feedback. You know, they're just not getting it from a multitude of perspectives where, where you know the work that you're going to inevitably try to do is not going to be recognized or not going to work work long-term where you may opt to, to pull out of that deal. Um, you have to have a pretty serious conversation. What does that look like? And how do you go through that decision-making process? And, and my last question would be, if you do end up having that conversation with that client, what's something that you, that you can share that potentially leaders inside of companies today can, can hear 
and learn from so that maybe they don't be the next one that pushes back or to make that conversation easier or more fluid. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I know it's a la layered question, but what are your thoughts on those, those couple points there? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And yes, I have had clients like that over the years. Um, the good news is it is definitely um, a small subset, but I could probably count on one hand or maybe a half dozen clients where it got to that point where I start to think, I don't know that I can be effective because they don't want to take the steps necessary to achieve the full potential of their change. And, and I mean that as kind of, they feel that way carte blanche, not they don't want to do an element of what I believe is necessary. And um, that's part of a, you know, a healthy relationship with a client. If you were to ask me how I would have um, handled it and how I would have perceived that early on in my career, it's different than how I would perceive it today. Um, one of the first things is when I start to get frustrated with a client and start to think that that is where we're headed, the first thing I asked is, I, or I ask myself is, have I communicated what needs to be done, why it needs to be done, and the impact on their goals and their desired outcomes or the benefits they're hoping to get? Have I explained that those three things clearly enough? I need to tie it to what their goals are, what mm -hmm. benefits they're hoping to achieve and how their decision or their lack of decision is going to impede that success. So that is the first thing that I ask myself because sometimes it is, you know what? I need to communicate clearly and tie it back to the benefits or I need to talk to more people about it, different people, um, so that's the first thing. The no, second it, yeah, no, go ahead. No please, no, please keep going, keep going. And then sometimes it's about asking those challenging questions. And I have asked that question of clients before, and that is kind of the one, the question that I mentioned before, which is, are you looking to make this change or transformation to say that you did it or to achieve the benefits that were laid out? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's you uncover morsels of what's actually driving the change. And it may be a little bit more of we need to do the letter of the thing, as opposed to um, really trying to achieve the value of it. And sometimes the question is a little bit of an eye opener for the recipient of the question and they can recalibrate. And sometimes it's about a little bit of a negotiation of, we just don't have the time, money, resources, or we have a deadline. What's the most we can do? How can we maximize you know, our time and resources um, given the constraints and still achieve as much of the potential of this change as possible? Before we exit this, are there any, and, and I know you and I off, off this podcast are potentially entertaining some things and, and getting your feedback on some things that I'm working on, but, but outside of that, are there, any, are there any tools, frameworks, or processes internally 
that that help you throughout this process that 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 can be helpful for those that potentially are going to be going through change. And I asked that question because there's always been change inside of companies. There's always been change globally. There's always been change financially. There's always been change um, as it pertains to uh, racial, demo, you know, racial aspect. I mean, there's always been this change, but I get the sense, and I'm still a very young man, so I could be wrong, but I get the sense that two things are happening. There's more change happening inside of companies at a more rapid pace um, than ever before, starting, let's say, five to seven years ago. Or it's just that with social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, um, the uh, you know computer devices when we can kind of you know work remotely, um, it, it just maybe you know the 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 reality of that and the communications of all the different changing happening throughout the world just maybe you know promoted and broadcast more. Um, whatever the reason is, I think we all can agree there is a lot more change happening or being exposed. Um, so 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 internally, are there any tools or frameworks that you can share? Because I'm I'm quite sure there are people listening. To this, to this podcast that maybe are not at the right time, don't have the right budget to, to reach out to you all, but would still love to try to find ways to go through this change process successfully. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many resources available for people. So there's a couple of things that I would suggest for people. One is there is an organization called ProSci, which is, I'll spell it P-R-O-S-C-I. And they are a body that has a framework around change management. And it's a great way to help people understand the fundamentals of change, the process of change and how to go about change. And so they will, they have articles and videos around the importance of awareness about the change, making the case for change with your individual team members, um, the importance of gate engaging people in change. So that organization and all of the tools and content they provide are really important. Um, the other things that I would recommend is one, especially if you have a leadership development group internal in your organization, is to look at how do we engage them? Maybe it's a workshop on equipping leaders to propel change. I don't just want my leaders to manage change. I want them to propel it, to push it forward. And so they need to know and think through what do I need to do and what does my team need to do to make this change a reality. And I'll provide an example of that in just a minute. Um, I would say the other is communication. And there's a ton of you know, books and tools around communication, but creating the context for change. Why are we doing it? What's the cost of not doing it? There's some really great, um, even just free articles around the stories that you should have prepared in your arsenal. And by stories, I mean um, reality, things that have happened. So not made up stories to sell the change. So changes that have gone well in the past in your organization, you wanna have that story and you can tell it of how it was tough and you ultimately realized results. So looking up articles and books around the communication about change 
and creating the context for it. Um, one of my favorites is also the book Radical Candor. I am a firm That's believer. It is, it's superb. Um, and so I'd recommend that. And then back to an example. So when we think about culture and mindset, I know when people say mindset, I, I think I have an inherent like cringe factor that I'm like, ugh. Mm -hmm. um, if I, I mean, I believe in growth mindset, but I hear the word mindset all the time. And I just think it's like touchy feely and all this. No, there are changes that need to occur in your culture and in mindset that go along with a transformation. And I mean, off the top of my head, I could probably come up with 10 of them, but one of the most overlooked that is the easiest for people to touch and feel is imagine if you were implementing a system, maybe an ERP, which would be the, the back end, your financial system, how you manage your inventory, your warehouse, your shipping, any number of things. Imagine you're implementing that and you really want to move towards more data-driven decision-making. I want less of the decisions my leaders make to be based on purely their gut. Okay. That's not going to happen just by virtue of turning on a new system and training someone on it. Mm -hmm, exactly. Having a culture that's based on data-driven decision-making requires so many elements. Do my leaders know how to make a data-driven decision? Mm -hmm. Do they know how to access the data, understand the data, interpret the data, analyze it, and gain insights from it? Um, do they know how to bounce that off of their gut? I, I had a leader once who the company was making this transformation to data-driven decision-making. So she always wanted people to spend hours and hours pulling together all of this fancy data. But inevitably, after presenting it, she would toss all the data out and make a decision based on her gut. Mm. every single time. And so there's training elements for that mindset change. There's communication. There's a lot of parts and pieces to make sure that we actually transition to that. You can top down, make a mandate. Now we're going to make data-driven decisions, <laughs> but um, a mandate isn't typically enough. You have to set expectations. You have to show people how you have to uh, provide them with feedback when they do it well or when they need to make um, some modifications in how they do it. And so that is an example. And so I, I say that to encourage people to flesh out those culture and mindset changes. And again, there's a lot of books and free content out there that talk about those. You'll still have to define the ones that are appropriate for the transformation you're trying to make. But that would be the, the last thing to, I would say, to go out there and search for that type of content. And Jess, I lied to you here. Um, I, I have one more question. <laughs> okay, love <laughs> it. Um, and this is something that's actually pretty important to me as well. So, so what I think has been happening, and I don't know how long this has been, maybe 50 years, 100 years, I don't know. Um, but but anyone that's on the consulting element in, inside of the people work, it could be change management, business consulting uh, in the world that you play in. It could be 
internal communications consulting, DEI consulting, it could be anything in the HR people sector. Um, something I've realized is that as soon as the engagement is done, it can take up to, it could be as fast as a week or it could be as slow as a year, but it seems as though if there's not any true best practices, systems, um, frameworks that are put in place to keep the, the ball moving forward, to keep the change management processes that you have implemented inside of these companies, keep them alive and thriving, that eventually the companies will go back to how things were previously. Um, one way that I like to make sure that it doesn't occur, and this is more of an employee's first example, and I would love to get your like holistic perspective, but if, if, if a leader is involved in the change at a departmental, at a department level, I like to get feedback and try to look at the metrics that we can track, starting from the employee's perspective again to see, you know, did the leader do their part to, 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 to live up to the expectations that were set? Did they consistently go back to you and get your feedback along the change? You know, however you want it to be, you know, implemented and involved in the change, did the leader continually do that? Um, did the change process overall, overall throughout new changes that the organization had to endure, did that process go a little bit smoother? So I like to try to go back to organizations and track that out and see if there's there's been consistent um, implementation moving forward. So so how do you personally and you know actually overall as as a firm, how do you go back to a company six months later, a year later, and see how? the work that you worked so hard to put in place is actually cemented inside of the company's culture and an operating model. Absolutely. So I absolutely, I definitely believe in kind of that retrospective of looking back. However, there are many things that we can do to operationalize a change so that it actually takes more energy to revert back to the old state. So what we don't want is a change where we haven't operationalized it. So inertia can set in the change. We said it launched today, but it's not operationalized. So inertia, I, I'm, I'm not gonna use the new system. I'm just gonna use Excel or I'm not gonna crunch the data to inform my decision. I'm just gonna make it based on my gut, whatever that is. I'm not gonna collaborate with another department, even though that was one of the things this system enables, I'm just gonna go back to being in my silo. And to operationalize it, you have to put system and, and tools into place, whether that's um, governance, continuous improvement. So not just the concept, we're going to have continuous improvement folks. Okay. That's nebulous. That is not operationalized. What is our process for continuous improvement? What is the cadence for that? Who is responsible for that? Who are, who is involved in that? How do we review, prioritize, and implement those changes? And it's the same for, uh, I'm just going to stick with the data-driven decision-making as an example if you want to move towards that state, then you have to interrupt the old way of doing it, which means I have to have a way to say, okay, what is the data that you use for this decision? When they say they don't have it, okay, 
that's not a decision we can make until we have the data um, and providing them with the training and whatnot to get there. But you have that governance of, okay, we're moving towards this data-driven decision-making. And so we are making sure that people are accountable to that. And that if they provide the data, we're also modeling that as leaders and we're using it to inform our decisions. And so when our teams challenge us and say, okay, what was the data behind that decision? We can actually speak to it. And so if you just implement a change by providing training and communication, but you haven't built your standard operating procedures that how we behave, I would revert to what I used to do yesterday too. And so that's where you need accountability, mm. governance. And then going back to the after the fact, there's a lot of things we can measure. We can measure behaviors. Are people entering orders in the new system? Are they running reports in the new system? Are they creating returns in the system? Or are they taking the order and walking it down to the shop floor? Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually in a conversation with someone just yesterday where they had exactly that scenario. And so they put into, um, into their process a way to shortcut that if somebody brought an order down, the people on the shop floor could not act on that order unless it was in the queue of their system. And so it's shortcutting those non-desirable behaviors and stopping them. So you can measure those types of things to see the adoption. And then also coming back to your point, soliciting feedback. If they're not adopting it, is it inertia? Mm -hmm. Or is there an issue where what you set out the process to be or the tool that you provided is cumbersome or it doesn't work? Or, and this is probably one of the most common, it works if all of the factors are exactly as they typically are, mm. but it, it's not flexible enough to account for those anomalies, you know, the, the order that's a little bit different, the request for a resource or a service that's a little bit different. Yeah. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that flexibility and you haven't already laid out how to handle that, well, once I've done a couple of you know, those exceptions or unhappy paths through the system, you know, I'm just going to kind of revert because I had to do it for these three orders or services. And so I might as well just do it for the other ones because that's how I used to do it. Exactly. Now, that's very helpful. Now, thank you so much for that. Let me ask you this. In the, in the couple of minutes that I have left with you, I actually do not plan on talking about change management this entire time, but I, but I actually, I love this topic a lot. I think, I think it's needed. I think this episode is going to be helpful. I think the work that you all are doing is helpful because there's change that's happening at all times throughout companies. And I don't think enough, uh, I don't think enough leaders and enough companies really understand how to process and go through change successfully and, and how to maintain engagement throughout, maintain high levels of productivity throughout and successfully be on the other side of change. And then connected to the last point you were making, successfully know how to apply the right frameworks, maybe even leverage the right technology, the right data, the right insights to consistently go through the next round of changes 
and know how to do it successfully, know how to do it where the, the, the feedback, the engagement, the, the, the fluidity, the speed is fully aligned. And, and, and I think what's unfortunate is, and frankly, and this is funny, this is kind of tongue in cheek, what's gonna keep you in business is the fact that I think companies um, are gonna consistently fall back to their ways at times. Um, and I'm sure you would admit you probably had some repeat clients throughout your career, haven't you? <laughs> um, I have typically, or I uh, more often than not, it's because they want to take on more change. But I, you know, especially early on in my career, when we tried to boil the ocean for change, um, it, it is, it's too much to bite off. And so you see less permanent adoption and more erosion of those mm -hmm. results. Got it. Uh, let me ask you this final question. I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart. This is in the DEI sector. It's important to me. It's important to a lot of companies and leaders these days. Um, so one topic that you said over, because as every guest knows, I kind of have my, um, or every listener knows, I like to have my guests in a position of, of power and talk about things that are exciting and relevant to you. Um, you know, as you're looking at diversity today, you know, one of the questions you came across is, you know, how can we, how, how can we, and how should we minimize harm across all types of diversity? Um, neurodivergence being one that I know you personally can relate to. So um, for those that don't know about neurodivergence, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, for those that have no idea about what that even means, and more and more importantly, but from a different perspective, those that um, don't really understand what it means to, to minimize you know, harm across diversity and, and how those that are that are neurodivergent and and and, and all other factors about diversity are not being heard or respected or listened to or don't have leaders that know how to deal with those different those different changes or moments. Give us just a, a 90 second, two minute, three minute just download of, of your perspectives on that topic. Yeah, I think the number one thing that we, we need to do as leaders is to remain curious. And a part of that is minimizing the assumptions that we make about someone, whether that be their experience as a woman, as a, a Black person, as a transgender person, as someone who is new to their career in their 20s or who is seasoned and in their 60s, um, or in the neurodivergence case, that we aren't making assumptions about someone's experience the needs that they may have, the preferences, the accommodations. And I'll use uh, me as an example, just because someone has learned how to work well with me and my uh, strengths and my opportunities and some of my idiosyncrasies does not mean that now someone is an expert at working with neurodivergent people. They have a data point of one, and everybody is different. And that's true for all of those aspects of diversity. Because you've worked with one uh, Asian person, one African person, you've now worked with one and their experience, their preferences, et cetera, are gonna be distinct. So making assumptions is one of the quickest ways to, to stub your toe. So remaining curious, and minimize the assumptions that you make. Ask questions, ask people what they need, what their preferences are, how you can best lead them, how you can best serve them as a peer and have the, 
the conversation because everybody is distinct. Everybody has elements of diversity. It's just how many people have overlapping experiences in more kind of aspects of their background or uh, their race, et cetera. So with some people I work with, I have a lot of similarities. I share, share a lot of um, similar backgrounds. Maybe we have the same socioeconomic back background. Maybe we are the same race, same culture. Maybe we even share the, the, a type of neurodiversity. Maybe they are also um, autistic or have ADHD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So realizing that just because that may be an easier person to, I'm going to say, quote unquote, figure out, there are other people that are more different from me where I want to make a more intentional effort to understand mm. and not to minimize, just to think, you know what, but it, I work so well with 80% of the people because they're, you know, pretty much like me for the most part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you just, I have heard before when people say they hire for culture fit, um, I, I understand the sentiment behind that a lot of the times, but one of the dangers is I hire people like me who get along with people because that's easy mm -hmm. and I understand them. I relate with them. We have maybe the same sense of humor or we have the same priorities or similar. Okay. That is not a compelling and passionate and diverse or divergent thinking, a culture with a lot of divergent thinking, which is how you challenge each other and bring out the best in people's ideas and our critical thinking and our problem solving. So not just looking for who are the comfortable people to work with, but who are the people who really elevate each other's thinking and performance. And a lot of times those are not people who are like us. It's a lot of times they're polar opposites. And so they provide a good counterbalance. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I'll even add this too. I believe, and we're probably not going to get there for a while, but I believe moving forward when, when organizations are putting together their managerial director rubrics and, and how they measure in and make decisions around who's going to be a leader inside the company, when and why and how, I believe understanding factors of which you just explained and many more um, should be a part of the prerequisite. I, I think we, you know, we can no longer have leaders inside of companies that are influencing the teams and frankly influencing the way human beings feel by not respecting someone that's neurodivergent, not respecting someone that has, you know, I, not, I never even told you this, Jess, and I'll just say it live on air here. I've never really told too many people, I, you know, I suffer from severe ADD. I have since I was, I was diagnosed at three. Um, I was on Concerter. Uh, as a medicine until till 19 um, and, and struggle with it to this day and obviously found different ways for me to uh, be productive in my own right. But I let every single partner, I let every single employee that I hire, I let every single company that I'm a part of know I suffer from ADD. Here's what that means. Here's the adjustments that I would appreciate you as a leader make to, to work best with me. And here are things that I will do to 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 understand my limitations and, 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 and make up for those gaps where, where it makes sense so that you're not looking at me any different and or I'm not being as productive as someone else that is not 
that does not deal with ADD. So um, I, I resonate with everything you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, you said it so well. And I would just add that we can highlight what is the superpower that's kind of that flip side of the coin for something that is potentially, you know, some hindrances, because I have ADD and am autistic. And so there are some hindrances, but there's a lot of superpowers that come with it. Mm -hmm. And I'll just um, kind of leave folks with, I was on Reddit the other night and a woman posted, uh, she had an art gallery and had posted her, these wall hangings made out of all these textures and they were beautiful and fascinating. And she said the inspiration was her brother who was um, blind and uh, deaf and mute. So um, a lot of the senses we rely on every day, he does not have. Mm. And so she made this for him. And so I asked her, I said, I, I would really love to hear um, his explanation for his experience with your art, understanding that he can't share it in a typical way, but what is he experiencing? Because that's going to be so different than my experience with the art. And so the same goes for people who have different, whether it's conditions, backgrounds, experiences. Um, elements that make them diverse is really thinking about, wow, they could bring a perspective that I could not even fathom because my background experience, the way my mind works is so different and my senses are so different. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Jess, this has been amazing. I truly appreciate you. I know this has uh, been a long time coming. Um, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful for the potential collaborations. You've been so amazing at giving myself and Rob and the team over at Almas some great feedback. Um, you've been an amazing podcast here today. Uh, I know so many folks will, will learn from your perspectives around change management. And uh, any last thoughts, perspectives? You can plug anything you like, anything that's happening at the firm, any projects you're involved in, um, and then I'll get you out of here. Yeah, I would just say if folks are interested in connecting, I am on LinkedIn and I scored the backslash on the URL of my name, Jessica Noble, N-O-B-L-E, so you can connect with me there. And I've written a couple books. They're on Amazon that you can find there um, if they're of interest, but really connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I post quite a bit and I love engaging with folks there on that platform. And one thing and one advice that I'll give um, Jessica, from the experience that I've had thus far, unless there's some news that she will share with me, which I hope it's not, um, she is open to, you know, collaborations and feedback and building a relationship. If you organically and, and calmly approach her on LinkedIn, please do not try to force anything down her throat. Is that, is that a good, uh, is that a good uh, plug there? Because I know LinkedIn is a crazy world these days. Oh yeah. If I get the automated message of, I was looking at your business and I'm positive that I can help you with your lead generation or with your developers. Um, yeah, I just mute, delete. And if they're bad enough, I actually block people or, yeah. but, but yeah, people who are humans who want to engage and connect in, in conversation. Um, I love that. It is less and less common, especially in direct messages. Mm. Um, but I love it, which is, probably because it is less and less frequent on well, that platform. 
Well, I, I, I resonate, you know, and I tell people all the time, it is very obvious why LinkedIn was created. It was here for professionals to, to interact. And the last time I checked, professionals are working at a job. So there, there are deals that can be made. There are business that can happen. There's content that can be created. There's information sharing. Just go about it organically. Take your time. Be patient. And if it's a win-win, the the uh, the 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 business gods will 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 make it happen. Just take your time. Yep, absolutely agree. Perfect. Well, Jess, I appreciate you, and uh, we will check in soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you.